The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. We are in the book of 1 Corinthians. If you have a Bible, you can uh, open up to the book of 1 Corinthians. It's basically in the back, uh, in about 100 pages. We'll have the verses on the screen um, if you need. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, uh, it's totally fine. We've got those up on the screen for you. And um, But I just want to extend my... Uh, my welcome to anybody who's here for the first time. Just really grateful to have you with us uh, to worship Jesus and to hear from his word. We are doing this, we're preaching through the book of 1 Corinthians, um, which God has given us uh, for people who really struggle to be Christians. I don't know if that's you or if you're exploring Jesus, but uh, this is a series that we're titling Good News for Bad Christians because the Corinthian church struggled to follow Jesus, and uh, I've, I struggled to follow Jesus. I assume that you struggle to follow Jesus and know what that means, and um, you're in good company if you're trying to figure out what that looks like. And uh, so we're in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 9 this morning. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read our verses for us, and then we're going to pray, ask for God's help, and then we will dig, dig in. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 18 of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. So Paul says here, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Am I not your work? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife? Do we not, as, uh, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, is it not only Bar- not Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it, an ox for, the, is it for the ox that God is concerned does he not speak concerning for our sake? For it is written, there, uh, it is written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in the hope, and the thresher should thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we should reap material things from you? If others share in the right claim in, in this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless. We have not made use of this right, for we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve in the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have not made use of any of these rights, for nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if we do not preach the gospel. For if I do this on my own will, I have a reward. But if it is not my own will, I am still entrusted to a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching... I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Let's pray. Father, as we're reading through this passage, and 
admittedly stumbling through some of the statements that Paul is saying here, I pray that you would give us your spirit. I pray that you would meet us by your spirit to understand what's going on and to see the rights that we have in Jesus, but see them submitted to him. So in his name we pray. Amen. I admit that this is a bit of a, a strange passage to kind of preach through and talk about because it's not exactly the most like intuitive passage that you think of, like on a Sunday morning, hey, let's talk about a passage um, that talks a lot about rights and seems like there's a bit of some arguments going on and uh, talking about paying your pastor, like talk about <laughs> a bit of a conflict of interest, right? But um, I think actually one of the ways I want to get us into this passage is that this passage talks a lot about rights. And rights are really important to us as Americans, aren't they? Rights are, they're basically the founding idea of what does it mean to be an, an American, right? Uh, we're coming up on July 4th, and you'll remember that that is the, uh, the day where we told, told them Brits, like, get out of here. This is, uh, sorry, I thought that was funnier than it sounded. <laughs> it's, it was, uh, it, you know, it's where we, we uh, assert our rights, and then you have the Constitution that is ratified just a few years later, and then the Bill of Rights. They get added almost immediately to the, to, the, to the Constitution. It's core of what it means to be an American to have rights, right? And here in this passage, Paul talks about seven times about having rights. He, talk, he uses the word rights seven times. And he uh, asserts, look, I've got all these rights, and I have all these rights of what I've, what's going on in my life and in my ministry, and yet he's not using those rights, right? They have got some issues with Paul. And he's saying, look, your issues are not with me. I've got these rights. And he is going to assert what does it mean to be a Christian and, in his case, be an apostle. But he's going to do that in such a way where his rights are submitted to something better than himself. Right? He's going to say, I've got these rights. Just like all of us as Americans, we've got these rights. But Paul is going to make, his, make it very clear. Look, I've got these rights, and you guys, don't, you guys have got the wrong idea of what's going on in my life. But these rights actually... Um, they're submitted to Jesus. They're submitted to something bigger than me. They're submitted to who he is and what he's got going on, right? Because every family, like, has expectations about how we function, right? Like, in our family, like, if you're a part of the family, uh, you know, no means no. If you want somebody to stop tickling you, you say stop. You know, these sort of, like, you have rights of how you engage, right? You know, uh, I deserve to get a hug from dad or mom, right? Uh, provision, right? Or my children have the right to expect that I'm going to provide for them, which is often kind of questionable. But we have rights in Jesus, but those rights are going to be shaped by who he is. And so they're going to say, like, here's what, what's the main point of this passage. We must submit our rights to the shape of the gospel. Right? That's the main point of this passage. We must submit our rights to the shape of the gospel, the shape of who Jesus is, because what Jesus came and did, we just read a huge long section from the, from the Gospels earlier, right, about who Jesus is and how he operates, and there's kind of a feel about him, right? You get a sense of God's mercy and grace. What does it mean for God to be among us? And there's a shape of what that looks like. And these rights that we have, they are going to be based upon him and who he is and how Jesus works, and uh, they're going to be shaped by who he is. So if we're talking about rights in this passage, what are our rights? We're going to kind of talk through what are our rights as a Christian, and then how are they shaped by the gospel? So we're going to pick up here in verses 1 through 2. And the first right we're going to look at is the right to a gospel perspective. The right to a gospel perspective is we're going to pick up 
Because that's what it means to be a part of the, the but to be a Christian, not only for how people look at you and you view other people, there's a right to have us viewed from a gospel perspective. Verses one through two, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Am I not, are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I'm an, if not, if to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship. So first of all, he's using this word apostle, like it's a big word for him. Like, what does that mean? We're going to, let me just kind of break that down real quick. There's two uses of the word apostle in the New Testament. Apostle, you know, in terms of like straight word, just is a, is a big fancy word for saying somebody who's sent, right? Somebody who's sent with a message. And there's two uses of it. There's like, you might call it like the capital, the capital A apostle. There's not a lot of those guys. And then there's the lowercase apostles. And there's a few more of those guys. But capital A apostles, in terms of the, the, the New Testament story, is somebody who has seen Jesus face to face. They knew him during his earthly ministry. Uh, that, so seeing him face to face was seeing him in his resurrection state, right? So after he rose, rose from the dead, dead, so they saw him risen from the dead. They'd walked with him in his, in his ministry. They'd been commissioned by Jesus. So like, you know, if we all kind of wonder, like, what, what am I supposed to do with my life? Um, Jesus came to these guys, you know, there's about 12, 13 of them, and told them, here's what you're doing, right? You get like your job description directly from Jesus, um, and you have a job description of what you're doing, right? And then also, uh, you have authority in the church. So somebody who's being sent to have authority, they can basically say, Jesus has sent me, and whatever I say is law. So those are the capital A apostles. They're like a big deal. So you see this in Ephesians um, 2, sorry, that's the bottom verse here, Ephesians 2, 19 through 20. So when so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, he's talking about us, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on what? The foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. So these are the big, big deal guys. These are the capital A apostles. But then there's these little A apostles that um, are sent on a mission to go plant churches and to build, uh, build churches up and to strengthen gospel ministry. But those aren't like, so you've got like Timothy and all these other guys in the New Testament that are called apostles. And these guys, I think, are the, the second category, the, little, the lowercase a apostles. So you have that here in Ephesians 4, 11 through 12. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. But that sounds like something that continues on. We've got guys, and now I would not, on my business card, say Jacob, an apostle. That <laughs> seems a bit confusing. <laughs> but it's a gift that God gives to build his church. So I say all that to say, when Paul gets down here and down and dirty here in verses one through two, and he says, am I not an apostle, right? He's like, yes, I am an apostle. And what's the proof that he's an apostle sent by Jesus with a mission? It's that the church in Corinth exists, right? That they are there and that God's grace has birthed them into existence. They exist. And even though they've got all this beef with Paul, they're actually the proof that Paul's an apostle from Jesus sent by him to be uh, a messenger of who Jesus is, of his gospel and so their beef with him is really, in their context and culture, they would have expected somebody like Paul with those sort of credentials, right, to come into town and then get money from them to prove we're on the same team, right? You guys belong to me, and you guys are supporting who I am. You recognize what I'm worth, right? You talk about, uh, right, in uh, the business world, there's, you know, charge what you're worth, you know, know your value, right? And so in their time, they would have been like, look, if you're really who you say you are, if you really you saw Jesus face to face and you were sent by him uh, to, to build his church with his authority, um, then why aren't you taking any money from us? <laughs> because uh, 
that's the way you establish your cred, so to speak, right? If you're, if you're a $500 an hour profit, right, you get $500 an hour. If you're a $50 an hour profit, you get 50 bucks an hour, right? It's that sort of thing. And Paul didn't do that. So that's kind of one of the main issues. That's why we're going to be talking about money through this. He didn't do that because his commission was from Jesus and he still wants to see the grace of God established in their lives so that Jesus is seen for who he is, right? But you see here, before we move on, the reason we're saying that this is all the right to a gospel perspective is, do you see this here, verse 2? So to others, I am, if, I, if to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are, what does he say about the church in Corinth? The seal of my apostleship in the Lord, right? You guys are the proof. You guys are the ones that prove that I'm really sent by Jesus. Now, what I see going on in that statement, if you haven't been here for the last, you know, few months, we've been working through these chapters, you know, a few sections at a time, what you, what you might have missed is that uh, that is a very gracious assessment, <laughs> very gracious statement about the church that he's talking to because they have got some serious issues, right? You're talking about like Jersey Shore and Jerry Springer, like on steroids issues, right? They got some serious issues um, going on, some crazy sex stuff going on. They've got some serious, like they're getting, like having like church potlucks and getting drunk at the church potlucks for Jesus, you know, like they've got some serious issues going on with their church. And then they're saying, look, We've got this whole thing settled, and Paul, we don't need you around here. Uh, actually, you're beneath us, right? We've got these better teachers. So they've got some serious accusations going against Paul, and yet Paul looks at them and he says, you know what, guys, I'm just, you guys prove, you guys prove that, that Jesus is real and that I'm an apostle of Jesus. Like, that is an incredible statement because it's like, have you ever been in the middle of an argument with somebody, like maybe like one of your closest friends or your mom or your dad? or your spouse if you're married, and like in the middle of the argument, you just say, you know what, I'm just, this argument proves I love you. <laughs> you know, have you ever, have you ever like done like a, like a stopper in the middle of a conversation and be like, you know what, I know you're dead wrong, and um, here's all the ways that you're dead wrong, but you know what, I just love you. Doesn't that go over really well? That goes over really well, doesn't it? But Paul does that here in the beginning, in this, in, in this and it's because he starts out this letter, right, this is church that he's been correcting. We've been seeing this all through the last, you know, eight chapters or whatever. And he says this at the very beginning of the letter. I thank my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you are enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. Right? That's, I think he's pulling back to that statement where he's saying God's grace is at work in you. And that proves that God's at work in his people. It proves that I'm his apostle. And I'm just really grateful for his grace in your life, right? He, he's pulling back and saying, look, before we move on, because he's in the middle of this heated argument with them, you know what? I just want to remember, guys, church in Corinth, King's Cross, uh, God's grace is going on here. Right? There's something going on here that's bigger, deeper, richer than merely this argument they're about to have about finances and money, right? There's something bigger going on, and it's not just that he is a nice guy. It's that he has an eye for seeing the grace of God at work, even in the midst of their mess, even in the midst of their argument with Paul. They have been made a part of God's story of grace. Right? Don't we? We want this in our friendships, don't we? We want people like this in our lives. Like, in the midst of our mess, of the midst of all of our gross sin and weakness and struggle, 
don't we want people that say, you know what, I know we got beef to work through, but I'm really grateful for God's grace in your life. Like, we want those people in our, like, we want to have those friends, and maybe by God's grace, we could become those people, right, that say, you know what, I see what God's doing here, even in the midst of this struggle, and we want this from God. This is your right as a Christian. You have the right to have somebody recognize the grace of God in your life, even in the issues that you're facing. You have that right. That's the right that Paul is asserting here for them. They have the right to have God's grace acknowledged even when they're throwing a temper tantrum. Just kind of like, it's kind of like how with my children, like recently I was lifting up Silas, who's two, and I was putting him on my shoulders to try to help him get out of a situation. And he's all like going nuts, and he throws his heel back and kicks me right in the eye. You know, just like, like about like right here. And at that moment, I really just want to go, ah! <laughs> no, but... And God's kindness and to the local authorities. I did not do that. <laughs> um, this is what we need from our friends, isn't it? In Jesus. Even when we're throwing our, our, our biggest fit at them, we need them to see the grace of God at work in us. Because that's how Jesus views us. He sees God's work in you. And it's our right to have that. These are different rights than maybe the Bill of Rights that you would be expecting. These are not exactly the sort of things that we were expecting to see here. But we're going to move on to the next, the next right that we see here. Verses 3 through 12, or the beginning of verse 12. We're going to get to... Uh, I, want to I want to read these, and then I want to make a, a qualifying statement about them before we move forward. So you guys cool? We're going to look here at verses 3 through 12a. This is my defense to those who would examine me. So here, you know, you got this fit. They're kicking him in the eyes. He's lifting him up, that sort of picture. Do we not have this right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife or to have, as the other apostles do, as the brothers of our Lord and Cephas? So, right, Jesus had a brother and, brothers and sisters. They ultimately became leaders in the church. And Cephas is Peter. That's just another word for Peter. Or is it only Barnabas, so this is Paul's ministry partner and I, who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier for, at his own expense? Or who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? Here, let's pause here. We'll come back to this. I just want to acknowledge here before, before we move much further um, this is an awkward passage for me to preach, right? Because this is about, like, basically the application of this is, like, you guys should pay your pastors. <laughs> we should pay our pastors. And who's the guy talking about this? Our pastor. <laughs> it feels a little, yeah, you know, I feel a little icky about it. But it's just what's in the Bible, and we've got to move through it. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to pretend as though I'm talking about David Pickney up at River of Grace in Concord. I'm going to pretend like I'm talking about him, and you guys can do what you want with this, you know? So... <laughs> that way it makes me feel better and maybe like alleviate some of the awkwardness. But you notice that he, in these verses that we just read, three, um, three through eight, he is using the word, um, he's talking about three different types of rights that he has, right? He's got, look, um, as, as, a, as a minister, I have a right to uh, have a spouse along with me. I've got a right to have food provided for me. And doesn't it also just basically mean like provision and life in general? Like all my needs are provided, should be provided for. Right? Not like all these extravagant things, but his point is basically in all these, these illustrations that he's using is like, look, like, you don't like join the military and then pay your way to be a servant for the country, do you? 
Like that's not the way it works. Like even like our like our whatever whoever works like the police or the fire station. I mean, unless it's a volunteer fire station, right? You don't like pay your way to work, right? Or if you plant a vineyard, right? He's saying like, look, if you if you have like a garden in your backyard, like you don't like plant it and then give it all away. Like you you plant it so you can eat some of it, right? And his illustration is basically to say like there are things that are produced by the fruit of the gospel, and some of those are financial realities. And those need to be shared with the pastor or the church in general. Like those, that's kind of like the, the general business principles, like talking about business wisdom of the day. But what he goes on to say here in verses 8 through 12 is it's not just kind of like general wisdom. Because if it's general wisdom, it's like, okay, whatever. But he goes on, verse 8, do I say these things on human authority, right? Just general wisdom of the day. Does not the law say the same? Right, so now he's going to ground it in the scriptures. For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Right? Is it, the ox, is it for the ox, oxen that God is concerned? Right? First of all, yes, God is concerned about it, but there's a general principle that he's pulling out of this. Does he not speak certainly for our sake? For it is written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher should thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we should reap material things from you? If others share in this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Right, so here he, uh, he appeals to this biblical principle of like, look, when you're, you're driving, if it, who in here is a farmer? Like, so, like, is anybody farming here? Right, we don't have anybody who's got an ox. Nobody, nobody in here owns an ox. Right, so there's a bit of like a foreign concept for us, right? But imagine you owned an ox, right? And you're, you're plowing through your field to rip it up. And uh, so then you go through and you plant all the seed. And then you go through with the ox to basically kind of like knock off and get the wheat all ready to be pulled up. And the ox, I mean, bro, that ox is hungry, right? I mean, he is hungry as he is working through. He is doing work on behalf of somebody else, right? He's not the one who's going to go to the, the ox is not going to get up on its feet and walk to the farmer's market and sell it off, right? So he's going to have to get some provision while he's working. And that's the general principle of that, basically, like as the ox is working, it's a generous thing to provide and a merciful thing to provide for it for the ox as it works. And then he goes on to then um, talk about visual illustration. He's saying, that's what your pastors are among you. <laughs> right? Imagine a big, strong, incredibly strong ox. Um, I mean, I don't know how strong we could talk about how, how strong this ox is. But actually, this is why we, when we, we, we have ox, or uh, we have ox. So we have guys who are moving towards eldership. We call it the ox track. And it's because of these verses, right? Because being a pastor is hard work. Right? Some, actually, I don't work one day a week. I don't just work for a few hours on Sunday morning, right? There are regular pastoral counseling situations that come up during the week, and that's not like intensive care or anything like that. It's just like, what do I do in this situation? How should I think about this dynamic in my life? I want to get together and work through this, this issue that's going on. So you, so you have hours of pastoral care for people, and they're not like, you know, scheduled from like 9 to 5 on the sun, on, during the workday, right? But there's also sermons to prepare, how to disciple people, leadership. How do, I, how do we developing people to grow as disciples in Jesus? How do we get women stronger and healthier and, and flourishing as women who serve in the church? How do we get men stronger, healthier, flourishing as men in the church? Where are we going? What are the next dynamics that we need to think through as a church? How are we serving our neighborhood? These are all questions, like if you're wondering, like, what does Jacob think about during a regular week? Like, these are all questions I think about on a regular basis, and it is incredibly mentally taxing and, incredible, and an incredible amount of work, and I see God raising up more guys in our church to do the same thing, 
So like, we are eager to invest in those guys to get them up to be ox, right? <laughs> to be ox for the sake of the gospel in our church and in our neighborhood. But pastors don't live on spiritual money. <laughs> like, like, I'm, I'm really grateful. We have a very, very grateful church, people who are very kind and the ways that would say commend us. But like, I can't take like, hey, that thank you note and then go buy groceries with it, right? <laughs> you know? So there is a, 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 a material dynamic where like, look, we need to kind of throw our money in to support our pastors. And what he talks about here is verse 14, in the same way, the Lord, so he's talking about Jesus, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. This is actually a principle that would develop in the early church. Can we throw this verse up here? Verse, uh, Luke 10. And remain, so this is when Jesus is sending out the 72 to go uh, proclaim the gospel and advance the mission of Jesus. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. That's what Paul's referring to. Do not go from house to house, so don't um, Skype people or, you know, rip people off. It's also said in Galatians 6, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Right, so this is, I realize this is a bit of an awkward dynamic, but I just want to lean in here and say, this is a part of the privilege of being a part of a local church where you are committed to, I want to give my finances, some of my finances, to support the advance of the gospel through this church, right? There is a right to support the gospel in our church, right? And the right that's being confronted here is often we think, this is my money. I own it. I earned it. You can't take it from me. And the gospel says, you know what? That's just not the way God works, God didn't say, I own everything. You guys get off my lawn. <laughs> the gospel comes into my heart and says, this is my money, and I want to submit it to gospel ministry through the local church. I want to give my money to support what God's doing. Because you know what? We can't do that in heaven. Right? That's not something that we have the privilege of doing in heaven. This is primarily, if you're a guest with us, this is not aimed at you in the slightest. This is what we're talking about for folks who are committed to being a part of this local church or a local church. If you're a part of another local church, you can apply that there. Without the support of our members, we cannot continue. And God is able to supply, but he has chosen to use us as a financial support for the local church. Right? And this isn't like a prosperity gospel thing where like you put a little money in and then God gives you a bunch of money out. But there is a dynamic within the, within the Bible that talks about when you're faithful with a little bit, God's going to continue to bless you to support and be faithful with more. Right, so this is where, if you're trying to think about, like, okay, what does this actually mean? We can be in different places with the, this concept called the tithe, right? The tithe is basically saying, like, I'm going to give 10% to support God's church, right? That, is, that, that happens in the Old Testament. It happens before the nation of Israel comes into existence. It's a general principle that follows through, and in my perspective, it continues to go through into the New Testament where 10% of your income is a general marker to say, this is a good place to start because the New Testament, if anything, it doesn't diminish the, the, the bar of the Old Testament. It raises it and fills in the gap with God's mercy and grace and provision. And so if you're trying to think, like, what does it look like? Start with a little bit. I'm just going to give, I'm going to give 50 bucks a month or 50 bucks a week or whatever it is that you've got. I'm going to give five bucks. I mean, I don't really care. I don't need your money. This is more about your discipleship as a, as a person in Jesus. Giving towards the church and increasing in generosity. And I would just say this, and in no way is this a correction for our church. 
We have very generous people. I just want you to know, we have a very generous church body. There may be some who are struggling to give, and that may be because of a lack of a heart for the, the local church. It may be struggling with how you're going to think about, like, okay, if I give, then I'm sacrificing, and I've got tight on my finances. And I get that. No, actually, Jesus calls that out in, in, the New, in the New Testament where he says, look, she just gave a little bit to the house of God. She gave more than the guy who gave a million-dollar donation. Right? She gave like two bucks. So he calls it out and says, that's faithful. But God has called us to this relationship with our leaders, with our pastors, to honor them. And it is, a right, it is our right to support them. This is something, by the way, I just want you guys to be aware of this, that as we are thinking of moving a couple guys more towards eldership, we will be supporting them as a local church, right? They, they won't be full-time like I would be, but that doesn't matter. We want to be supporting them and honoring their time and commitment to the local church. So this is what Paul is going after here. This is kind of like the awkward part of the passage. We're going to kind of move on from this, but this is where Paul is leaning in and saying, yeah, I actually have a right to receive your support, but now he's going to go into this section of talking about, here's why I didn't take that right, right? He, he, he lays out this huge long case, right? There's all these verses saying you should, you should give financially to support your pastors and your, and your local church. And now he's going to say, ha, but we didn't do that. So we're going to pick up here verse 12, pick up the last half of verse 12, and we're going to talk about this right of gospel. We're going to call this gospel deference, right? This, deference is a word that says I'm deferring, I'm submitting, I am foregoing a right, and he's going to talk about what that right is. Verse 12, nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. Here we go. But we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel, right? So that's why he's saying, here's why we didn't do that. Here's why I didn't take that right. So, and then he's going to continue to go on to kind of this argument about financially giving to the church. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? Was well, probably a, a Jewish and Greek reference. So, if they would have come out of pagan churches, they would have had um, sacrificial offerings to their pagan idols, right? And when they would make a sacrifice of the meat, they would give they would give the animal here, kill the cow, you know, kill Bessie, you know, pull off the steak flanks, put the steak flanks on the grill, and the priest actually gets a part of that, right? That's how he kind of provides for his family for the day. Same thing with the Jewish culture. So he's just appealing to a, a general principle in both cultures. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. I want to focus in here, though, on the beginning of uh, the second half of verse 12. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure some things, kind of, a, a few things. No, no, no. What does he say? We, view, we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. You see, in their culture, the way they viewed teachers, pastors, poets, priests, prophets, whoever, is it was this idea, this idea of patronage. Do you guys know this word, patronage? Patronage is kind of an old school word, but basically patronage is this old idea of basically, I'm going to give you my money to support what you're doing, and it's going to raise my status because now I'm going to be associated with you, and then I'm going to get the benefits of what you're going to give to me. So you got patreon.com, you know, so you got you can like get like a relationship with artists or whatever. It's the same thing, but in their culture, it was taught that if you pay off, you know, say, Jacob the high prophet, I'd like that title, he's your guru, and your status goes up with him, meaning here's what happens. Right? So imagine whatever with whatever else was being taught, business ethics, you know, marketing, whatever. But when you talk about the gospel, 
Now you are saying, my works gets me the grace of Jesus. My work to pay off Paul, like that money, I now have a special insider relationship to get that grace. That grace, now I have a special privilege with that. I've worked to get that grace. And now if I continue to give, I'll keep that grace. So now it's, so Paul was recognizing that like, look, if you guys have this idea of how money works with teachers and I start taking that money, you're going to distort the gospel. It's actually not going to honor the way the gospel works because the gospel is absolute free grace from God for all of our sins and failures and weaknesses so that we can be free children of the king. Right? That is the gospel, and the payment is not what you do. The payment is what Jesus did. And so Paul is saying, okay, I know this seems a little silly, but if the church budget is run off of your money and that's the way you think about money, that's going to undermine the nature of what the gospel is presented as. So there's a serious issue going on there, right? So that's what he's talking about. That would have been an obstacle. Would you agree with me? That was an obstacle to the gospel. And so then, in their culture, then they're like, well, you didn't get paid, <laughs> So how can you be a true apostle? So that's what he's been saying all up to this point. It doesn't depend on getting paid to be an apostle. It depends on the free grace of God and what he's done. So, I, so you could be asking, well, look here, uh, nevertheless, um, I didn't take up this principle or I didn't take up the, the right to get paid, so we shouldn't pay our pastor. I'm not exactly sure that's the direct application of that, please. Um, <laughs> but actually, I think that as we think about like church planting, and mission work within our neighborhoods, within our context, within the greater Manchester area. Like when we planted the church, I didn't get paid very much. I was paid very minimal. And it kind of, as the church grew, my pay increased. As we're going to plant more churches, that's probably what we're going to do, right? Guy goes out full time. We'll give him a little bit of money to plant a church. And then as the church grows, we'll increase that giving. So it's not like, well, you're a pastor. Now you got to get paid whatever, right? It's actually, the, we're going to follow along with what serves the advance of the gospel best and make sure that the gospel is seen more clearly for what it is. I think what this means, this gospel deference, this is maybe a key area for us. Not, not the finances side of things. But are there issues of how the gospel is being proclaimed and how it would be understood within our culture? And are there any things that we're doing that put obstacles in the way, right? I'm just going to say, look, we're, we're all about our rights as Americans, right? We love to, I mean, bro, we live in New Hampshire, right? Like, live free or die. Like, we love politics. Like, some people are like, oh, like, how do you ever talk about politics? I'm like, I love it. It's great. I love it. It's great. It's fun, you know? I wonder, in expressing our opinions, whatever they are, our views on, um, you know, freedom, freedom of religion and state, gun rights, right? Um, whatever those rights are, privacy, security, right? You could talk about the abortion thing. All those things, however we can express our opinions in such a way that we actually put an obstacle in front of the gospel, right? It could be the gay rights stuff, right? I, I love that we got this flag up here in the window, right? This is something we could express our rights in a certain way that puts an obstacle that's unnecessary for the gospel to be heard and advanced. I'm not saying that we don't hold biblical principles, right? So Paul's saying, like, that's why... You know, in his context, he was talking about how they, they use money, right? You got like, what, like 12 verses committed to, you should pay your pastor, <laughs> you should pay your ministry support. But actually, here's why we deferred on that, these little verses here, because that would have hindered the advance of the gospel, right? So let's hold our biblical convictions, right? I'm not saying we should give up on the Bible or what it says. But the way in which we present that, it could be a hindrance to the advance of the gospel, to, the, to what the gospel means to those around us, Right?
I think, to be honest, this is one of the things where we need to think about what does our, our, our witness look like on particular issues and how those would be understood by our neighbors who aren't Christians. So, for example, we have a very high wall around our children's ministry and our church. You have to be a member to be a part of the children's ministry because you have to be vetted. You have to be trained how to understand um, a grooming behavior, so behavior of people who be perpetrators. We have a very high wall around our children's ministry. You know why that is? First of all, it's right. But secondly, you, you realize where we live here in Manchester, New Hampshire, one of the epicenter cities for where the whole Catholic abuse thing happened. Right? And when our neighbors view the church, they think those are people that take the side of offenders over victims. And as a church, we're saying, no, we're going above and beyond in our witness. We're going to, it's actually going to be hard. Right? It's going to be hard for us on this issue because we have the right as a church to say, we're going to be free. We love each other. Look, your kids around my kids. It's just, it's great. But actually, this is an issue. We have to raise the bar. It's actually going to be inconvenient for us. It's going to be hard for us as a culture. So I know there's at times where we're just kind of like, oh, why do we got to do this? Sign in. Like, I know they know my kid. My kid. <laughs> That's just the way we're going to raise the bar to make sure that our kids are safe. And as a gospel witness to our neighbors, this is what it means for us to walk in integrity with Jesus. And I think it goes the same not only for us, but for a family of churches as well, that it must be stated that we will hold our integrity under the gospel to make sure that we are walking in integrity on this issue, right? The other dynamic that comes to mind is church unity, right? My non-Christian friends, often they will say, all you guys, you're just not working with each other. All you Christians hate each other. You're always kind of fighting and bickering at each other. No Christians like each other. Look, look, you got all these issues going on, right? You're all divided. That's actually one of the reasons why as a regular, on a, every Sunday, our church, we pray for three other churches, one within our city or our, our state, one within our area, and then one global church, because the unity of the church matters. Jesus loves when his church works together on the, faith, on the advance of the gospel. And I think it says something to our neighbors that, oh, we're not the only game in town, <laughs> right? When we have folks who visit and they're like, hey, I'm trying to find my church or my church home where I want to be, and I'm like, hey, you know what? We're not the only game in town. We're not even the best church in the city. You can go join another church and still be faithful. That's okay. That is a part of how we look to to defer our rights, our reputation, our sense of what's owed to us, so that we remove obstacles from in front of our neighbors to hear the gospel. Because that we must we did not make use of this right, but we endured anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. It begins to check our hearts because it begins to get inconvenient. I'm sure it would have been more convenient for Paul had he been paid by the church in Corinth. Probably a little bit more lucrative because he was a tent maker and that was basically a blue-collar job. But we must strive to have a gospel shape to our, to our rights, especially those that we think about as being our American rights. All right, let's finish up this passage. The fourth right that we're going to look at here, and we're going to close with this, the right to gospel reward. Verses 15 and 18. But I have not made use of any of these rights nor am I writing these things to ensure any such provision. So he's just basically saying, like, um, I'm not writing about how you should be su- su- financially supporting me as a way of guilting you into financially supporting me. I'm actually not doing that, right? He's trying to teach them and not get from them. I would rather die than anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For I preach the gospel that gives me no ground for bo- For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. 
for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward, right? So if I, if I preach the gospel to get my own pay and in my own terms, to build my own thing in my own way, that's, I've gotten what I wanted. But if not in my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my rights in the gospel. You see here, Paul is talking about his reward for the gospel, and that is a conscience that knows I have honored God in how I have presented the gospel and that it wasn't for my gain or my reputation. Jesus was made known. He looked great. That's what he's talking about here, right? His ground for boasting is not merely in preaching the gospel, right? He didn't just say, here's what the gospel is. Here's who God, what Jesus has revealed to be, right? His reward was in a heart satisfied that I preached and discipled the gospel in a way that was consistent with the gospel, right? There is a way of ministry. There's a way of church life. There's a way of our discipleship that conforms, that is, a, that is consistent with the gospel, right? Because he talks about this actually over in Philippians, Beginning of Philippians, he talks about, um, he's got all these people that are preaching the gospel, but he says in verses 15 to 18 of Philippians 1, for indeed the preach, they preach Christ out of envy and rivalry. Right? How, does, how do you preach the gospel out of envy and rivalry and still be called a Christian? Well, it, it happens all the time. Like, people try to build their own thing. They go after other people. They attack other people. They build churches around agendas and um, campaign signs. They build... They build the gospel for their own, you know, sense of self-worth. But it's still the gospel, right? Like, I'm, I often will say, I'm really grateful that gospel, that's a gospel-preaching church. I wouldn't do things the way they do things. But Paul says, I preach the gospel, but I preach in a way that I took the hit. But the gospel got the, got the spotlight. But the, the gospel comes with the reward of being able to boast that Jesus and Jesus alone is enough, Right? This is what the gospel is all about, right? We're talking about rights all through this passage. We realize we're talking about a message based on a man who did not exercise any of his rights that he could have, right? When we're talking about Jesus, right? We've kind of been kind of skirting around this issue. We're talking about the gospel this whole time. What is the gospel? The gospel is the Son of God who, was, who created everything and spoke all of creation into existence, right? You want to know what is this room made of? This room is made of Jesus' three-dimensional words, right? He speaks this room into existence. He upholds it by his power. You and I breathe in air because he says air will exist. Your lungs will expand and then contract. You'll get oxygen. That oxygen will go into your blood, and that blood will flow through your body to give that oxygen to your limbs and your organs so that you will then have eyes to see and ears to hear so that you can hear about who Jesus is who gave up his rights so that he could come and live among us, live in our dusty roads, <laughs> work a blue-collar job just like the rest of us, work and live and provide for himself, and then as he spoke the words of God of grace and mercy, have his life snatched from him. But he gave it up on his own will, right? He, Paul says over in, First Corinthians, in Philippians 2, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, and then he goes off, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as anything to be grasped, like a right. These are my rights. I've got my gun rights, my voting rights, whatever my rights are. Those are my rights to be grasped onto. Jesus had rights as the king of the universe. <laughs> and he says, 
But with God, he was, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, submitted himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That is the shape of the gospel, where Jesus has the rights, he has the privileges, he has what is owed to him, and then he submits it to what? Death on a cross. For who? For us who would take all of our rights and say, God, I'm going to get them on my own terms. I'm going to get everything on my own terms. I'm going to offend you. Even I don't care. I want it. I know what I want, and I want it now. That's how we use our rights often. And Jesus comes in and says, you know what? I have the right to destroy you for treating God that way. But I want to submit that right to the mercy and grace of God to die in your place so you could be freed from your sin, freed from your, weak, your weakness, freed from the wrath of God so that then you get the rights and privileges of being a son or daughter of the living God. That's, inc- that, that's the incredible shape of the gospel, a heart submitted. So that's why when we're saying, what's the main point of this passage? We must submit our rights to the shape of the gospel. Submit what we think are our rights, even those that are truly our rights, and submit them to the shape of the gospel so that we are contributing, giving, and supporting, and loving, and and looking at other people with grace, and graciously giving our money away, and graciously deferring to the needs and weaknesses of our neighbors so that they hear and see and taste what Jesus is like and how we live, so that we can get the reward of having a life that's satisfied in Jesus and Jesus alone. That's what Paul's talking about amidst all of this. We, submit, we must submit our rights to the shape of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, as we have worked through this and seen your goodness to us in Jesus, I pray that our hearts would be shaped to love Jesus, to delight in Jesus, and to have all of our rights, as good as they are, shaped by who he is and his mission. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.